This podcast is brought to you by Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities. They do this through organising fundraising events revolving around the themes of rugby, alcohol, good company, networking and good food. They were formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Since their formation, Rugby for Heroes have raised nearly £120,000 for military charities. Their support that they provide people, that they provide charities, is incredible. An innumerable amount of people they've helped over the years, both directly and indirectly. Myself, I've been a beneficiary of Rugby for Heroes in the past, and I am very, very grateful for the support they provided me and the support they continue to provide many others. Male... Female, in fact, whatever your gender, whatever your service, military, ex-military, rugby for heroes exist to support you. They have got a number of events lined up for 2022. Uh, just find them on social media at rugby number four heroes or go to their website rugbyforheroes.org. Easy peasy. I strongly recommend you come along to one of the events. I've been to every single event that they've done since I came to know about them, and I plan to go to every single event in the future. The supper clubs are great. Each supper club features at least one guest speaker of notoriety, either in the military community or the, the society at large. Um, they're well worth going to. All of the events are worth going to. Rugbyforheroes.org. This podcast was also brought to you by the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group was founded in 1982 and has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation, working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. Aardvark are headquartered in the UK and they've got offices in the USA and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And the Aardvark Group develops technically innovative solutions which support a number of critical sectors. Their portfolio of solutions is extensive with all elements fully interoperable and capable of being integrated into your existing operational platforms. For example, the Aardvark AMCS, the Aardvark Gen 2, the Aardvark Ranger, pretty cool bit of kit, Aardvark Counter Drone Systems, their drone systems too, for example, the Aardvark eBird, and the Enduro, and a bunch of other technologies and services and products they provide. They also have an online shop on their website where you can pick up kit and equipment for the operator. Whatever kind of operating you are doing in whatever environment, I should say in whatever industry, in post-conflict zones, in theatres of war and hostile environments, Aardvark has a shop where you, may be, where you will be able to pick up kit that will assist you on your merry way in those places. 
Go to aardvark.group, check out the shop, check out all the products and services and the technologies. It's very cool stuff. Very cutting-edge technologies they're deploying. It's really interesting to look at and see and understand. And when you buy something from the shop for you, use the discount code HHOUR and you will get a discount at checkout. The website is aardvark.group and you can find them on social media, the Aardvark Group. Easy peasy. Also bringing you the podcast today are Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars, I'm very proud to be a part of this company, a relatively new company. They are the only British military veteran-owned cigar company in the UK. We source our cigars from a family farm in Colombia, which has been rolling cigars for an excess of 200 years. These cigars are so good that I know several people we're binning off their love of Cubans to smoke combat cigars. I am not joking. I'm not making that up. You can find it out for yourself. I'm sure you'll find it online. They, that is happening, okay? We stumbled across this family who made cigars when we were looking for a, a unique independent supplier who fit the right people to work with, who we wanted to partner with. And my God, the product is incredible. Combat cigars are incredible as, as a result. We are three former service people. Obviously, you know my background to the podcast. The other two guys behind it as well. They are former Pyro guys. And the cigars we sell are all themed around the military, obviously. We've got four cigars. We've got the Center of Mass. We've got the Victory. We've got the Last Post. And we've got the Oath of Allegiance. And each cigar features a medal ribbon on it relating to the name of the cigar. You need to go on, on the website and take a look quite timely at the moment we've got our victory cigar which is very very popular it's robusta sized it's a beautiful flavor that features the medal ribbon of the south atlantic medal i.e the falkliners medal it is a 40th anniversary this year get on to combat cigars put in the discount code cc oh cc2022 yeah, that's correct cc2022 and you will get money off your next order do it by veteran owned when you're thinking about getting cigars when you're thinking about cigars in general for any reason think combat cigars go to combatcigars.co.uk Ian Donnelly, welcome to the H Hour podcast studio, and big shout to Ed Hargreaves for the referral as well. Yes, uh, thanks very much, Hugh. Thanks for having me here, and thanks, Ed, for referring me in. He's, yeah, he's, he's sent a few people my way now. I'm very grateful. Oh, very bless grateful. him. Well, he's a well-connected guy, <laughs> isn't he? Yes. Um, okay, we're going to be talking about policing. We're going to be uh, a lot of subject matter that's in your book that you've got out, Tango Juliet Foxtrot. So I think first let's establish uh, your background, sure. especially with the policing and, and your authority on the subject, if that's the right way to put it. Okay, thanks, uh, Hugh. So, so, so yeah, my name's Ian Donnelly. I, I've written a book called Tango Juliet Foxtrot, and that book basically describes a number of things. It, it describes every job that I did in my 30 years of policing, and it also weaves through that story how the British Police Service has now come to be in something of a mess uh, nationally. Um, so my background, uh, 30 years of policing. I joined the Metropolitan Police in London in, in 1989. Um, and uh, I served 
most of my career as a investigator, a detective of one sort or another, um, I spent probably about half of my career in counterterrorism, uh, both in Special Branch in London and then later on in the West Midlands um, counterterrorism unit, uh, dealing with, uh, for many, many years in London, dealing with provisional IRA, uh, mainland operations, um, and then later on in Birmingham, dealing with uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalist extremist operations. Um, I also did uh, a lot of work around child protection uh, in Birmingham, uh, and I also spent various uh, spells in the uniform as you do, as you go through your career. So I was a uniform PC, obviously, at the start. I was a uniform sergeant in Coventry um, when I transferred up from London. Um, then I was a uniform inspector in Birmingham. Uh, and uh, and I retired in 2019 um, as a superintendent in Birmingham, uh, running uh, a national data analytics project. So it was the first attempt uh, globally, uh, I believe, um, to use artificial intelligence to understand um, serious uh, crime, specifically gun and knife crime. So there you go. That's me. Oh, interesting. So was that a... Uh was that an international coordinated effort, or was it UK centric for that? It was, U- it was UK only. Um, so it was a home office funded project, four and a half million pounds of home office money, um, and we uh, were in the middle, as you recall, and still are really. I don't, we've, we haven't come out of it yet. We were in the middle of a gun and knife crime epidemic in the UK. Many young men uh, dying, um, and sadly, that's still the case. So what we were trying to do was to try and understand. Uh, bringing together 25 years' worth of data from um, lots of different data sets to try and understand um, what are the... Can we predict with any degree of confidence uh, those individuals who are likely to commit a first offence of serious violence using a gun or a knife within a six-month window? So using predictive analytics and machine learning to try and understand that. So yeah, it was a very complex project, and it's still ongoing. Uh, two years on after I've left, so. So. The the gun and knife crime epidemic mm-hmm. that is, forgive me, that is an a- actually happening. It is a real thing. Because the reason I ask is, I've seen it. You know, I've seen a lot of in the news over the last few years, especially about knife crime, and I'm always just one. I always wonder when I see it. Okay, is this just the news lashing onto something because there's, there's nothing else to talk about, or they're creating something out of nothing? But it sounds like it's not. It's no, no. There's been something like I, I normally when I'm being interviewed. Um, in the media, whatever, for various things to do with my book. I'll, I'll have a uh, couple of pieces of A4 in front of me with statistics, um, you know, so I don't kind of quote incorrect statistics. But so c- f- forgive me if I'm slightly, you know, not 100% here, but uh, I think the uh, murder has, the numbers of murders have increased um, by somewhere between 35 and 40% uh, in, over what, in, over what in the last seven years. Um, Jesus. The number of uh, hospital admissions for very serious injuries of sharp objects have, have increased by 41% um, over about a six-year period. Um, and, and obviously last this year, we've now breached the highest number of young um, knife crime homicide victims in London. Uh, I think it's the highest it's ever been. So 33, I think, this year so far. So on the or like in, within the last twelve months, rather. Yeah. So on the thirty-five to forty percent, and again, you're you're trying to recall figures mm. out yeah, in front yeah. of you. Thirty-five to forty percent increase on 
in murders? Is that across the board murders or life and gun crime related murders? Uh, that that's murders, um, but most of that increase has been driven by um, uh, drug related murders. That's incredible. Mm. County lines and young again urban street gangs um, fighting over territory. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, um, very worrying. And, and and as I've said. Excuse me, I'm just going to cough. <coughs> As I've said in my book, um, this is in spite of the massive improvements in emergency medical care provided by highly trained paramedics at the scene, as well as A&E doctors whenever people get admitted with gun and knife injuries. So a lot of the improvements in emergency medical care uh, around the country have been driven by doctors coming back from those um, war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, emergency medical care has never been better today than, than it's never been better than it is today. And yet, in spite of all of that, we're still seeing very, very large numbers of people dying. Can we go into, can, are you able to go into the reasons for it? So why do they think it's happened like this? Why are the increases happening? Well, I think it's, it's drugs effectively is driving an awful lot of that. Um, and and also the proliferation of young men carrying weapons, particularly knives, in the inner cities. So, why has that increased over the last few? So, well, uh, so there's a everything happens for a reason in life, and um, and uh, for me, uh, and certainly for a lot of police officers and, and ex police officers, that there's a direct link that can be drawn between uh, that increase in murder, increase in knife crime, and the serious reductions in resources for policing um, and not just policing over the last 10 to 12 years but the significant reduction in a lot of other frontline services such as drug and alcohol treatment um, treatment for medic mental health conditions particularly for young people a lot of those services um, that would have um, been able to sort of provide some support around young, particularly young men who are going off the rails, uh, just isn't there anymore. Um, and again, as a result of, you know, a, a reduction in, in resources for policing of about 30% in the last 10 years, um, neighborhood policing has been largely um, dismantled. And prior to that, um, every Every council ward in the UK, in England and Wales, would have had a dedicated neighbourhood policing team. Um, and those neighbourhood policing teams were incredibly good at spotting um, young people who were going off the rails. And they would do something that would either divert them into some sort of um, more sort of constructive uh, activity, or, or they would carry out very robust enforcement activity to get them off the streets, I suppose. So when you take away all those resources and you break down those those um, neighborhood teams, then unfortunately, the this is what happens. And, and we've seen county lines, obviously, uh, proliferation of drug dealing going out from the inner cities into kind of largely rural parts of the country, which wouldn't have previously experienced that. So, um, so yeah, it's all it's all part of uh, a reduction in police resources and frontline services. On the subject, the, count, the county lines thing, um, the movement of drugs around the UK, 
between <coughs> counties is not is not unusual in itself, is it? So, what's no. brought about the county? The, well, the county lines phraseology, and and then the the you talked about going from the urban areas into the rural areas. It mm. seems to me like from a demand and supply or a demand perspective, there wouldn't be much demand in the rural areas because just less people. So, what's the reason for that? Well, it's not necessarily rural areas, but certainly it's probably sm small towns okay. t towns um, uh, that that would previously have not seen the same sort of issues around drugs. Um, and it's just all it's a it's a it's a business model, isn't it? So drug dealing is a business model, and once you've saturated the market within um, your sort of uh, local uh, local area, then those drug gangs will look to you know create new customers elsewhere in the country. So um, it's not it's not something that's absolutely new. Um, there's always been a case where drug dealers would go out into other parts of the country to deal drugs. Whereas it's the scale of the situation now that has sort of changed over the last sort of five to ten years where large groups of um, young and very vulnerable children um, are being recruited to, to um, carry drugs and to deal drugs all over the country, um, which kind of creates some distance between the kind of, uh, you know, the sort of mid-tier drug dealer the kind of the the kind of facilitator or organizer whereas previously if they'd wanted to deal drugs they would have had to go and do it themselves whereas now they 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 keep their hands clean but send out um you know large numbers of kids effectively to do that work for them all around the transport system and what have you and you think one of the enabling factors there is this reduction in the community policing oh massive massively yeah massively um uh, yeah, it's one of the one of the things I talk about in the book is the the fact that um, so there's effectively been I talk about I talk about um, rather than a holy trinity I talk about a toxic triad, which is um, uh, policing. I think in the UK has been destroyed. Certainly in England, Wales, anyway, it's been destroyed as a result of three things. It's been destroyed as a result of uh, political interference over many years, um, uh, particularly badly, I'm, I'm sorry to say, by this current government. Um, and this is not a political point I'm making. I'm not remotely interested in politics, quite honestly. It's just a statement of fact that when this government came in in 2010 under David Cameron as Prime Minister, David Cameron had a bee in his bonnet about policing and had a bee in his bonnet about policing for a long time. Uh, and uh, for, he, what, for what reason? It goes right back. There's a there's a school of thought that would say that it goes right back to the early nineties uh, when Ken Clark was Home Secretary and tried to do a reform pay and conditions of policing back in 1992. <coughs> At that time, David Cameron was a Home Office advisor to um, to. Ken Clark, or later uh, taken over by Michael Hart, who took over from from Ken Clark, um, and Michael Hart. Well, both Ken Clark and Michael Hart got got a bloody nose from the police service for trying to do that. Um, there was massive resistance to what they were trying to do, and effectively, a lot of that. Um, it's believed anyway that a lot of the thinking around that was um, sort of David Cameron had been a key part of that. So when he became prime minister in 2010, um, I think the entire police service was holding its breath, thinking, OK, it's going to be payback time now. 
and uh, and sure enough it was um so we lost 30% of our resources um since that time 50 50% of the police stations in England and Wales have closed and been sold off uh 75% of the police stations in London have been closed and sold off uh we lost 20,000 officers nationally and we lost 23,000 members of police staff nationally let's go back to those are massive numbers. Let's go back mm. to the start of that. So thir- when you say 30% of resources nationally. Yes. When we, so let's, w- mm. what are we talking about there? It's well, resources. P- police budgets. Yeah, police budgets were okay. cut by about 30%. Um, so they had to make massive savings. Now, the Conservatives argued that this was uh, necessary due to um, austerity. And whilst there was clearly uh, a requirement to make some savings to, you know, in line with some of the fiscal pressures that the government um, faced at that time, the cuts to policing were particularly harsh. It was just after the the, fin- the banking crash, or the financial crash. That's it? right, yeah. Um, and um, <coughs> that, housing market crash. Sorry, housing market crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of that, all of those cuts came um, simultaneously with a review of police terms and conditions of employment. Sorry, this is a bit dull talking about terms no, and no. conditions of employment, but um, there was a thing conducted. Uh, called the Windsor Review. So Tom Windsor, who was the real regulator, came in, and uh, on uh, and Theresa May, who was Home Secretary at the time, um, asked him to do a review of terms and conditions of police um, pay and conditions. And um, uh, there was massive uh, changes, and not for the better. Uh, so pensions were kind of slashed. Um, starting salaries for officers uh, reduced. Lots of the kind of allowances that that police officers were given uh, were reduced. And morale took a massive hit. Um, So when you you combine that sort of 30% budget cut with terms and conditions of employment that were a lot, made made policing a lot less attractive for people, um, certainly less attractive to stay, yeah, that's what that's kind of what you get, unfortunately. And then, so you got you had the resource cuts, and then what did you say they shut fifty percent of the fifty <coughs> percent of the the locations in London yeah, have been closed. Fifty percent of police stations in England, and Wales have been closed and sold off in the last ten years, and seventy five percent of the police stations in London have been closed and sold off. So, um, so the net result of that is that as well as losing 20,000 police officers and 23,000 members of police staff who do vital work behind the scenes um, to, to allow police officers to do the job that they do, um, if you take away 75%, so take London, uh, if you take away 75% of their operating bases, for want of a better word, um, you basically remove police from the community by doing that. So, uh, so now police officers have to travel quite long distances sometimes to physically get to the locations that they want to, that they're tasked with patrolling and keeping safe. A lot of those neighbourhood teams who would have been embedded within the community have gone now. Um, and um, and also, uh, if uh, previously, if you wanted to arrest someone, you would generally have taken them to a cell block that was. Uh, probably only a short distance away from where you were working um, and uh, it might, might be you know, five or ten minutes in a car to get to a cell block to book in a prisoner, um, whereas now cell blocks are all but unknown in local police stations because they just don't exist, local police stations just don't exist anymore in large parts of the country. 
So they've built these things they call sort of super blocks. They're, they'll, they'll have large custody centers that are basically, basically like mini prisons, really. But very often you have to travel a very long way to get to one. Um, and because there's, um, uh, you know, a large number of people trying to kind of get in the queue, so to speak, to get the pr prisoner booked in, very often they'll have long waits to get a prisoner booked in, maybe two or three hours to, to, to wait. Um, so the net result of that is that um, people don't uh, are very reluctant to arrest people. Um, so so we're now seeing a massive reduction in cases coming to court. Um, so the latest figures were published by the Home Office on the 27th of January, so what, a week ago. And we've now got an all-time low of 6% of total recorded crime that ends up being um, sort of resolved as a either a charge or a summons to court so 10 years ago you would have had something like 15 to 16 percent of total recorded crime that would have had a positive we would have described that as a positive outcome in other words um someone we'd conducted an investigation we've identified a suspect we've arrested that suspect we've processed them and there's sufficient evidence to bring a charge to take that suspect to court uh, now that number has dropped uh, to 6% of total recorded crime. So 94% of crime that gets reported to the police in England and Wales um, goes nowhere. That's 94%? 94%. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Going back to your point about the local, the local, um, the local stations, I was reading, you probably would have seen it, or maybe would have seen it, there's a, to your point about how far away support is, police support is. Hmm. It was the farmer who flipped, who had uh, uh, two guys park their cars or car on his farmland, blocking hmm. the gate. And he took his telehandler and he flipped the car, pushed the car out of his land onto the main road. I think hmm. he accidentally clipped one of them with the forks as well hmm. at the time. And when I was, he, he, re, he, got, he got away with it. He got off. We went to court and he hmm. got off with criminal damage and something else. And, uh, I mean, he, he was assaulted. Did you see this story? I can vaguely remember something. Yeah, he was, he was assaulted during it as well. And he, he was the old, I fear for my life. And hmm. that was his defense on it. Hmm. And he, he got away with it, uh, I think when I say got away with it, it's not me insinuating he was guilty and happened to get off. Yeah, yeah, he, you yeah. know, he was cleared yeah, yeah, of yeah. any crime. But when I was reading through the article, I thought oh, I'd be interested to read this <laughs> to see what's going on. And one of the things he pointed to was these people were on He'd hit me. Um, uh, before this happened, I could have called the police. He said the nearest local station was 15 minutes away but mm. was unmanned mm. it's not manned anymore mm. and then the the one beyond that was 45 mm. minutes i think and so he just took mm. it he just took yeah. matters into his own yeah. hands yeah. And, th and this is the problem is, and you've you've hit the nail on the head there that this is what happens when uh the gov the the british public are sort of starting to wake up to this now and we've been saying it for the last 10 years co cops have been saying this for the last 10 years that this is a disaster for public safety in the uk um, and the British public are gradually starting to wake up to it now because there's now uh, a kind of a realisation that there's, in many ways, kind of almost no point in reporting crime to the police because the likelihood of someone actually being found, uh, unless the crime is really, really serious, um, you know, the, the likelihood of the police actually finding, um, you know, someone uh, responsible 
through an investigation, through a, a robust investigation, and bringing that person to justice is extremely unlikely. So if I use burglary, for example, um, you know, I was a sergeant, when I was a sergeant in Coventry um, many years ago, uh, or not even, it's not even, go, I don't even go, need to go back that far. When I was an inspector in Birmingham, if you had a, a residential burglary, if you were a victim of residential burglary, you would have had a uh, response from uniform officers probably within an hour, an hour and a half maybe. I mean, if the suspects were still nearby, you'd have had a very, very rapid immediate response. Um, uh, but you would have had a response pretty quickly. You would have had a full kind of investigation, initial investigation carried out by those reporting officers. Um, that same day, you probably would have had a visit from detectives and a scene crime investigator to come and retrieve uh, potential forensic evidence from the scene. Um, and we were, we were clearing up um, and charging somewhere in the low 20% of burglaries um, because we were good at it and, and we knew our stuff and we had sufficient resources. Um, now it's very common for police not even to come out to a burglary, never mind investigate it um, properly. And my my old boss on, on my I've got a podcast called um, sorry to plug my podcast plug away on, on your podcast plug away. Uh, so I've got a podcast um, called Tango Juliet Foxtrot and uh, on and on that podcast I I interviewed my ex boss uh, Clive who was my old chief superintendent when I was in Birmingham and he told me a, a sort of a, a very kind of almost unbelievable story really where his partner was a, the victim of a residential burglary um, I don't think the police came out at all. Um, and uh, he went round to kind of have a look around and find blood um, on the fence, uh, uh, which was clearly the burglar's blood because it was where they'd obviously got in, they'd cut themselves on. So, so in old money, we would have had, uh, in, you know, years ago, we would have had that blood, um, you know, uh, sampled and we would have had it fast-tracked uh, through the lab. We would have had a DNA profile probably within 48 hours um, and we would have had someone as we say in the police in the traps i.e in the cells very very quickly and even though you couldn't maybe necessarily prove that the person who left that blood was definitely the same person who burgled <coughs> your house um, if nothing else it would give you the intelligence if it you know to uh kind of target that particular individual because you'd know that that person was committing burglaries in the area was now and he said he went absolutely mad on the phone and said I can't believe why you're not sending someone out to retrieve this blood and he said well because we can't we can't prove that you know it's the blood of the burglar I mean that's the mentality now unfortunately oh my god well but that and that mentality is driven just by attrition really well I think there's also so I didn't really finish that point I talked about so I talked about the I talked about this toxic triad. So there's three there's three parts to what's happened to policing. One is this um, terrible damage caused by certain politicians, and and, and and that goes back to the Labour Party just as much as the Conservative Party, albeit the Conservatives, I think, uh, on balance, have caused more damage. Um, the other thing is um, a relentlessly hostile media narrative around policing, um, where it seems that, uh, the police are being pilloried for almost any bad thing that happens now. 
Um, and that's having a devastating impact on the morale of police officers who are out there day and night trying to keep the public safe because they just sort of feel, well, what's the point, quite honestly, because um, we're not getting any thanks for this. Um, so that's the second thing. Um, the third thing is very um, <coughs> poor, weak uh, leaders uh, in the police service. We've some of some of the people at the very top of the organisation across the country have been very, very weak. Um, they're more sort of interested in their Twitter following, um, or 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 some sort of ridiculous um, kind of uh, virtue signalling gimmick. Um, gimmicky PR than they are about actually getting out, serving the public, doing everything they can to su to support their staff, to go out there and do the very best job they can to keep the public safe. Um, and very often, a lot of these people who are very senior in the organisation are are more interested, as I say, in in themselves, in their next career. Uh, step or the next promotion process and so they've been they've been let and that's not to say that it's all senior police officers because it's not there's lots of there's hundreds of really fantastic senior police officers in the country but unfortunately they're outnumbered by those who are very self-interested I think. Um, how difficult is it at the top maybe you can comment on this maybe you can't to uh, to avoid the Political influence. Let's think about things like, well, any, not just the Met, but you know, big cities like Birmingham, to avoid political influence on on the right thing to do in terms of policing strategy versus the 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 thing that the the uh, the politics in power want you to do. I think it's almost impossible now. Um, uh, one of the very unwelcome, another of the unwelcome gifts from David Cameron was the creation of police and crime commissioners. So police and crime commissioners were um, brought in to replace uh, independent police authorities previously, whereas police and crime commissioners are unambiguously a political beast. Um, they, generally speaking, um, belong to, you know, a political party of one sort or another. They're elected. Uh, which then um, it's a fairly short-termist sort of mentality. So again, you've got that sort of four to five-year kind of tenure in post. And um, so there's police and crime commissioners have, have politicised policing a great deal. They've also made it much harder for chief constables to uh, to be truly independent um, um, because the police and crime commissioner has uh, the ability to sack them. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't think they had any power apart from representing um, or bringing forward the sort of civilian, no, almost being like an MP, but for the, on the police side of things. Or oh, I completely misunderstood that for the police. No, they, they, they've got the ability to dispense with the chief constable services, <laughs> um, which means that the chief constable's in a tricky position and trying to have to try and placate whatever their sort of preoccupations are. So you've got... So you've got this very fragmented landscape. Sorry, this is this must be a really, really depressing podcast no, for God. people to listen to. We're going to have to lighten things up yeah. a little bit. Well, but, you, should, uh, you should have written a different book. <laughs> there's, a lot of laughter, there's a lot of laughter in no, the book in, as well. In, but. In, in all seriousness, it's very, very interesting. Like, like you know, we were, talking, we were talking before the podcast 
um, most people have a baseline. My my understanding of policing is, oh, there's police in the streets. Sometimes people say good things about them. Sometimes people say bad things about them. Most of the time, they get a bad rap by the media, completely on board with that. Mm. But generally, I'm like, okay, well, I can see them sometimes, so mm. everything's all right. And then, you know, y- you get you get people who, who have knowledge, drill into it a bit further, have a um, real-world experience of it and an understanding of it, and, and then you have someone who writes a book and explains, hmm, this is the situation, this is what's wrong with it. And it's it's important to understand <coughs> because, yeah, yeah, you're right. you know, um, it, because policing is such an important part of society. It's an important mm. part of the UK, important part of any, any country, yeah. right? And... Um, and this has given me a better understanding of it. So keep carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on board. And I'd like to know, I'd like to form my opinions around yeah, what yeah. should happen with policing, because why not? Yeah, well, um, if I explain what the title of the book actually means, so Tango Juliet Foxtrot, when I when I first joined the police in London back in 1989, I was posted to South London as a uniform PC, and one of the first things I used to hear all the time, and it didn't really mean anything to me initially, was TJF. TJF, so... Police officers would say, you know, TJF, if they were told to do something that didn't make any sense or they were given a stupid posting or they had, there was some new policy would come out that was just bullshit, um, they'd go, TJF. And I was like, well, what's TJF mean? And uh, it, was, it means the job's fucked. And, um, <laughs> and TJF is something that police officers have been saying to each other for a long, long time. And I tell a story in the book about when I was a uniform PC and I went to this flat on the top floor of a council block in South London. There's an old boy, he was getting tortured by, not tor- not literally tortured, he was getting emotionally tortured by a bunch of um, local yobs who were just making his life miserable, sticking dog shit through his letterbox and knocking on his windows day and night. And I went around to try and help him anyway. Um, it turns out he was in his 90s, and it turned out that he had been a police officer um, all through the Blitz in London uh, during the 1940s. And um, I think he'd retired, you know, like donkey's years before. He'd retired in the 1960s or something ridiculous. But he told me some great stories, you know, about working in the Met during the Blitz, pulling people out of buildings and air raids and all this stuff. And... Um, Anyway, just as I was leaving, he grabbed me by the arm and said, um, is the job still fucked? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I laughed and said, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And we had a laugh about it. So the point is that people have kind of always been saying that. You know, it's a bit of a, a thing that cops say to each other. But the reason I wrote the book was because there is a general sense in the UK at the moment amongst police officers that the job is actually fucked now, um, as opposed to it just being something that people have said. Yeah, yeah which is worrying, right? Because um, it's not like policing is the only problem we've got at the moment. We've got an economic problem. We've, mm. got, a, um, we've got an immigration problem. We've got just basic societal problems, we've got media problems, we've got political problems, <coughs> which all, <coughs> it's, everything interacts with each other, right? So, what, what's the way out? <laughs> well, how do you, I, I, how I do think, you recover where we're at at the moment? Well, I mean, I do, um, I do kind of offer 
in the last couple of chapters of the book, I do offer my thoughts around how things can be turned around. But it's going to need, first and foremost, it's going to need an acknowledgement by people within the political system that they've really fucked up. I mean, really, really badly fucked up. Um, and the police service is the only police service we've got. Um, when something bad happens to a member of the public and they're a victim of crime or, or, the, or the world goes, you know, implodes, who else are they ever going to turn to? And this is what I'd say to journalists as well. It's like, before you destroy something, before you smash it up, you've got to make sure that you've got something to replace it with. And at the moment, they're smashing everything up. Well, the government smashed the police service up back in t 2010, um, and it's, it's in a terrible mess now. And uh, we're seeing almost daily, weekly examples of, of bad news stories around policing. And so many of those can be in some way or another attributed to the reduction in resources, um, as well as a collapse of morale. So you're hearing these desperate, terrible stories about officers taking selfies at crime scenes with dead, with murder victims. I mean, it's just horrific, and I feel so ashamed. Um, you know, I feel so sorry for the, the vast majority of police officers who are out there are doing a good job when that, that stuff happens. For me, all day long, that's a complete collapse of discipline. And I, and I think it's kind of, if you want to use a military kind of analogy, if you look at what happens when discipline collapses in a military context, you get things like the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. And I mean, I'm not trying to make a, you know, a direct equation between what's going on in British policing and My Lai massacre, but that's what happens when people stop feeling, um, you know, proud of the organisation that they're part of. You look at the sloppy uniform standards of dress, general behaviour. Um, you know, when I when I left policing, um, I was really like a lot of my colleagues who'd been there for a long time and policing a long time. You know, we we commented co constantly about the over familiarity between um, junior ranks and sort of their managers. Um, and I tell a story in the book about how I was in my office one day when I was a detective inspector at the time and in, uh, in a child abuse unit. And um, a sort of slovenly PC walked into my office and um, uh, he said, excuse me, he goes, excuse me, mate, mate, can you sign this? And he th th sort of threw this piece of paper on my desk. And, um, and I went absolutely fucking ballistic with him and threw him out of the office and said, firstly, I'm not your fucking mate, um, sir, you know, so uh, who's your, you know what I mean? So it's this kind of stuff, unfortunately. Um, so is that, is that, a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Is that a reflection on the way society has gone? Is that, is that a morale issue? I, I just don't know, but I think a lot of younger officers now, I sound like a right old fart saying this, don't I? But a lot of younger officers just don't seem to understand the seriousness of the job that they're doing and that the the public expect police officers to be that kind of absolutely um, that sort of rock that they can rely on whenever their lives are falling apart. And, and sadly, uh, I'm kind of not seeing that at the moment. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be a bunch of factors influencing it. I mean, one of the things when you when an organisation has to, you know this, an organisation has a, a thing it needs to do, a service it needs to provide you, an objective it needs to achieve, um, and then you start stripping away the tools by which it has the ability to do that, then it may have all the governance in the world and all the rules and regulations it needs to abide by, but it comes to a point where, so all of that, the idealistic model of that organization and the resources and tools it's got, they, they are there because they are needed to achieve the objective in, and in the way it's supposed to do it within those guidelines, rules, regulations. When you start peeling back the resource and the tools, then it, then, but you don't, you don't reduce the scope of the objective you've got to achieve or what mm. they're expected to provide. Mm. Then the only way forward is to start cutting corners, start mm. bending the rules because there's no other way to achieve it. Mm. And then, and then that's where you get your discipline issues. That's where you get your <laughs> selfies with their bodies issues. Yeah. You know, that's where you get your breakdown in. Uh, you get your breakdown in. Uh, well, you're in seeing the all this, uh, in the these WhatsApp groups now that seem to be proliferating, and we're seeing t you know stories now of officers exchanging all sorts of you know unacceptable stuff on WhatsApp groups, and and then they get investigated for something or other, the phones get seized and then they get downloaded <coughs> and, uh, and sure enough, they're exchanging stuff. So, I mean, in my one of my recent podcasts, I talked about that because there's, there's two ways of looking at that. On one hand, you could say, well, uh, it's completely unacceptable and it's a massive, you know, there's all sorts of data protection issues there and all of this kind of stuff. Or you could, Or you could say, well, actually, if you were to grab the phones of most young men between the ages of like 22 and 35, um, and and subject them to some sort of examination, you were, you're going to find this stuff, aren't you? Um, so I don't think, you know, we, we can't expect to put a load of young, okay, let's talk about men for a minute, because it is predominantly a bloke thing, isn't it? This kind of uh, WhatsApp messaging kind of stuff. You mean exchanging yeah, yeah, stuff? Yeah, stuff that's, non -PC. stuff that's probably offensive to someone which is everything in some way <laughs> in <laughs> some way you know um and there was all this outrage last week wasn't there there was those officers in charing cross in london they'd been investigated and disciplined for inappropriate use of whatsapp exchanging messages that many of which were deep were were actually deeply offensive which what was this I'd so there was a story last week where there was a, a group of 14 charing cross officers in central london who had been disciplined um, for uh, using abusive language, making really sick jokes about rape and black people and disabled people on WhatsApp groups. Um, and uh, and some of them had been sacked and some had resigned, etc. Uh, and I just thought, well, okay, that's that's not good. Um, and and I feel um, you know disappointed. Uh, well, more than disappointed because some of the things that have been said were, were horrific. But but I just thought, well, hold on here. If you were to grab the phones of a cross-section of MPs or senior police officers or army officers or blokes who work together for a sales company and subjected them to the same forensic examination... Um, you're probably going to find very similar stuff. 
So let's not get too sanctimonious about all of this kind of stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but at the same time, it doesn't make it right. No, no, I'm not, I'm not, not saying it's right. No, I but, know. But let's kind of, I mean, again, I think back about some of the things that used to get said <clears throat> face to face by blokes working together in the police that were toe-curlingly cringy and abusive to each other or to someone um, was now it gets permanently recorded on a WhatsApp message or a Facebook Messenger message or whatever, and it never goes away, does it? Uh, and most of it's humour, and this is the thing. A lot of it. Well, yeah. well most of it is humour. The problem is, like you're saying, it's recorded like that. I mean, it is a... It is a, it is sort of a, 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 a what's the word? Not a factor. A trait of mm. blue light services, yeah. military, yeah. emergency services, yeah. frontline services yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Where people just are a, they just exist in a, an environment for their in their work, which is just a bit more dangerous than day to day stuff, and they experience. Yeah. Horrible things. Well, nobody ever comes to the police to tell them <laughs> something really brilliant just happened to me today. Let me <laughs> yeah. let me tell you about it. You know, and they deal with all sorts of shit, and um, uh, and I just think we've got to be really careful here that we don't make the job so impossible and so unattractive to people that no one's going to end up doing it. Um, and and uh, and there's an interesting one for me about. What sort of people do we want to have in the police? Now, the police is a incredibly complex organisation. Does all sorts of things, many of which the public never get to sort of see or hear about. Um, it's not all about uniformed cops wandering around the streets doing stuff. There's all sorts of other functions that go on within policing, and um, but at some point in time, uh, most uniformed officers are going to deal with some very violent things and the question for me is um do you do you want the only people in the police to be the sort of people who go sit at home reading poetry on their days off you know at some point you you do need people in the police who are strong confident are able to use controlled aggression to be pointed at some bloke who's kicking off in the street or in a domestic or in a nightclub and say, see that bloke over there? He's all coked up. He's on steroids um, and he wants to fight everyone. Go and sort him out. And you do need people who are going to not just do that, but actually enjoy it. And um, uh, so the question for me is, if you're going to, if you're going to sort of take this very high-minded approach every time a police officer says or does something that is, in the eyes of someone, unacceptable, then uh, don't be surprised if we get a police service, you know, that is, to all intents and purposes, completely toothless. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense, but is but. The the problem there lies with the way those events are portrayed or communicated to the general public. You know, you you were talking about um, earlier about the media 
tarring people with the same, tarring everyone with the same brush. I mm. remember when the that the policeman in I think it was a Met police officer who who murdered that lady. Mm. Oh yeah. And Wayne Cousins. Yeah. My God, I as you probably did the I felt so bad for for police in general mm. because the mm. way that was portrayed mm. and the way that that people general in general on social media majority jumped on the back of it and all of a sudden everyone was a murderer yeah. you know um and it happens all the time i remember when uh, it's t- it's ho- it's a horrible way that we exist at the moment in terms mm. of the way we jump on things like that we being joe public jump on the back of something outrage culture mm. and there are ho- there are masses of a ac- there are sections of society which suffer from it mm. in this case it's the police mm. my um I know someone, a, a, a young person, who when um, when oh goodness me, the the black guy in America was killed by a police officer. Oh yeah, George Floyd. Yeah, when George Floyd was 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 killed. Now an example of this, how it because it it filters down the younger generations as well in that way of thinking. And um, this young person said to me that uh, we were having a conversation about it all, and and the observation was made that all police. All, all police are racist, <laughs> you know, mm. and and mm. and I was like, uh, really? Mm. Well, what about such and such that this mm. young person knew? Mm. Oh, they're not them. Oh, well, hang on a minute. Mm. It's just he doesn't he doesn't work like that. But at that young person's level of thinking, that filters up. It goes mm. up as well. There are people who think mm. all police mm. are murderers. There are people who think mm. all of the Met Police are racist people because it was racist mess. Mm. perceived racist message you shared in a WhatsApp group last week. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so difficult to overcome. I think to to prevent it at the moment is mm. is the discipline part, part. Yeah. How about don't communicate like that on WhatsApp people? Yeah. 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 The military have the same problem. Mm. You've have you seen Fill Your Boots that uh, military banter on Twitter, on Instagram, right. uh, run by an ex Power Edge guy mm. and people from the military will send him in screenshots of WhatsApp groups from whatever units and mm. they they communicate in the way they should be communicating like that for whatever yeah. reason. And it goes to end up with social media. They don't learn, but it need, needs to be done like that. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, it is really tricky, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, people are only human, aren't they? I just think we need to be very careful that we're... Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't Please don't interpret anything I've said as in some way condoning or uh, approving of any of that bad behaviour. I don't. I just think... I just I live in the real world, you know? And I just know that... Some of the people who I've worked with over the years um, who probably would say outrageous things in the pub or in a car or whatever um, uh, were actually brilliant police officers. They were brilliant police officers and, and they were brilliant with members of the public. They were very compassionate. But, you know, when I was... We deal with some real shit, you know, and I, I dealt with... Um, uh, when I was a sergeant in Coventry, I, I kind of I got this reputation. I think they called me Doctor Death for a while because every time, <laughs> every time I was on duty, I was getting sent to um, deaths of one sort or another. And when I'd come on duty, everybody would would joke and say, "Well, fuck me, who who's who's going to die? Whose turn is it to die today? Because you're on duty." And there was one week I went to three hangings in one week, you know. Um, and, and this stuff has an impact on people. Um, and that's why police officers and nurses and doctors and a lot of other people in the emergency services do have a very sick, dark sense of humor because it's often the best way to diffuse that tension or whatever. But w- you, with involving the humor with it, you're normalizing it in your mind. 
that yeah. you, I think that's what it is. You normalize it. If you can laugh and joke about it, mm. it's not as serious as what your brain is telling you it was. You yeah. know. Um, on, on the subject of that, so what about uh, mental health services within the police, for police? Have, the, have they been drastically impacted as well over the last... Well, there's, there's something of an epidemic of mental health issues within policing at the moment, unfortunately. Um, we've got very high levels of suicide, twice the national average um, sort of per capita of suicides within policing. Um, massive levels of anxiety and depression. Um, and, and again, that's another... Um, symptom of the loss of resources, the lack of perceived lack of support from senior managers, perceived lack of support from politicians in the media. It just feels like a very thankless job. Um, and it's also f another um, symptom of a massive increase in demand for the organization. Um, so uh, again, I describe this in a book, how when I first joined policing, we were able to use a lot of discretion about what we dealt with. So we would tell time wasters to stop wasting our time and we would prioritize members of the public who really needed us the most. Um, whereas now we've got these very um, sort of one-size-fits-all approach to, um, to things. Um, police are just kind of overwhelmed by demand uh, and bureaucracy. So that, that all kind of combines to create a bit of a pressure cooker environment for officers and... Um, uh, they have historically not been good at dealing with mental health issues. Uh, they are definitely getting better. And um, there is a um, an organization, national organization called Oscar Kilo, which is uh, around uh, supporting officers um, with mental health issues. But to be honest, what I hear anecdotally is that it's just not enough. And... Um, uh, it's interesting as well because you know this expression. It's it's okay not to be okay. Um, I, I also hear about instances of some officers kind of slightly uh, um, taking advantage of that sort of mentality, and um, you know saying things like, uh, "If it's all right with you, I, I don't really feel like doing night duty this weekend because I'm feeling it. You know, I'm just feeling a bit sad or something." It's like. <laughs> You know, so I think the challenge for, for supervisors is to know when something is genuine, when someone is genuinely in distress and needs some support or intervention, and when someone is just, uh, yeah, just doesn't fancy coming to work. And that can be quite tricky for supervisors. And I can certainly remember dealing with certain individuals who were always the first to ring in sick. Um, and that then has a massive impact on those who are there because they're having to do more work um, to carry the vacancies and whatnot. So it's a very tricky one trying to understand what's real and what's not sometimes. Yeah, I think that's always been the case, but it's just more there's there's more excuses these days. You know, as the classic at the moment is, uh, yeah, I've got COVID symptoms. Mm. <laughs> I've been gone for two years. There must be people who have got, have had COVID symptoms like 10, 20, 30 times now. Not and not bothered rocking up. Not bothered rocking up for work. Yeah, I know what you mean. What do you mean? Um, when you were talking there, you, you mentioned there's a, a, a one side in terms of dealing with uh, dealing with reports, mm -hmm. um, people needing people needing police support, and you said there's a very much a one size fits all approach to it at the moment, which is the problem. Can you yeah. elaborate on that? So years ago, um, police were able to deploy their resources uh, in a way that 
um, they they were able to judge themselves what what needed a sort of a gold standard response or silver bronze or or no response whatsoever. They don't have that discretion anymore. Um, the Home Office um, have got uh, there's very strict data quality um, standards that um, police are expected to adhere to, which are audited. Uh, continuously and every year by the, the inspector at the constabulary. So if you had, uh, so if I, again, I give an example in the book of how uh, maybe 20 years ago, if, if, if someone reported a crime to the police, um, we would go there and knock on the door. And if there was no reply, we would probably put a calling card through the letterbox and say, we'd we were called to speak to you regarding log number one, two, three, four. Um, if you still want to speak to us, can you please ring us back and we'll come and see you, whatever. And if they didn't get back to you, um, that would it. the log would just be closed and it would be like, you know, uh, caller no longer available, not cooperating with police, um, et cetera. Um, that was it. And we would move on to deal with something that somebody actually give a shit about um whereas now um if you ring the police and tell them that uh you know you've been a victim of something or other the the police have to satisfy themselves uh, whether whether something is genuinely being a crime or not for data quality purposes so um it's very so i suppose the net result of, of that is it's very difficult to get rid of stuff um, and when I when I left uh, policing a couple of years ago, um, we used to, uh, or probably five years before that, I'd say typically we would have maybe around a thousand open incidents in the force at any one time. So those are incidents that are kind of we need to try and res resource them. Um, deal with them in some way, whether that's sort of the very urgent stuff all the way through to the more routine stuff. It's Birmingham. Yeah, this is in the West Midlands. Whereas quite regularly when I was when I finished, um, we would have, you know, maybe three thousand open incidents at one time. And an awful lot of those are um really quite trivial, silly things like people just bickering over Facebook posts or you know really ridiculous things that years ago we would just we just would have resolved that on the phone we would have said to someone listen you know uh, close your Facebook account or you know don't bother us with your trivial fallouts with your next door neighbor over you know Facebook or whatever um, whereas now it's very difficult to get rid of stuff um, and if you do try and square stuff up in a way that we would have done before uh, you'll fall file of the data quality inspection. So uh, there's also massive demand now for things that previously would have fallen into the lap of other agencies like mental health services. Um, uh, and they reckon today police officers typically spend about 40% of the time dealing with mental health issues in the community. Um, uh, in in what 
In what way? People, so you got people, the top end, so people, suicide attempts down to... Well, it, at its most critical, there would be um, things like suicide attempts, but um, it would be people going missing um, who who have who have wandered out of a um, psychiatric unit, perhaps. It could be someone having a severe mental health crisis at home who's kicking off, who um, the family have called the police and we have to go out and try and sort it out. Um, there's been massive cuts to mental health services in the UK generally. Um, so, uh, because we're the sort of 24 seven, seven day a week, um, always on ser- service, we've become like the, the port of, uh, you know, with the first, first and last port of call for kind of everything. Um, Police cells are now routinely used as uh, what are described as places of safety. Um, So if someone is having a mental health crisis, previously they would have gone fairly quickly to, they would have had a bed, we would, you know, mental NHS would have found a bed for them in a secure unit somewhere where they could have a psychiatric assessment and be cared for. Um, It's very, very difficult to to get beds in those units now. So very often they end up languishing in police cells. Uh, And when they are in police cells, they have to be watched um, 24-7 by physically by a police officer who who has to sit literally in the the door of the cell watching them in case they self-harm. So all of these things kind of conspire to create a... um, uh, a situation where, frankly, uh, police officers haven't got the time to go and investigate crime anymore. And if they do investigate crime, then, um, yeah, the bureaucratic processes around crime <coughs> investigation and, and taking cases to court are very extreme now. So, so, for example, the Crime Prosecution Service will insist, in many parts of the country, will insist on a case being what they would describe as trial-ready. In other words, you have to gather all of the evidence and present it in a way as if you were going to go to, to trial before, and they'll insist on that before they'll even give an authority to charge, um, which uh, is a massive waste of police officers' time. Is that not also because of a, a massive cut in the CPS resources? Yeah, CPS have been cut. Um, the court services have been cut. The criminal justice service in England and Wales is... Uh, absolutely creaking at the moment have you read the secret barrister i haven't no um is it called the secret barrister yeah, yeah. i know yeah. The i think it's called the secret barrister and that they've done the second book now but i i got about halfway through that book mm. and it's in much the same way that uh your book tango juliet foxtrot is a mm. uh, uh, is a dis- yeah i was gonna say expose then you know a description of what's wrong with policing mm. That is a, the secret bias about what is wrong with the criminal crim- justice Well, not system. just the criminal justice system, it's mm. also the, the, the civil courts, right? Mm. Um, frightening, frightening, mm. frightening. Just, uh, if, if in fact, very similar to what you're describing. Just mm. massive cuts, mm. um, which causes a, so many knock-on effects. But sorry, go on, I hijacked that then, CPS, yeah. No, no, sorry, just, um, yeah. So, so it's not just policing, as you say, it's not just policing, it's the whole of the criminal justice, every part of the criminal justice system, whether that's probation service, whether it's the prisons. Um, I mean, I, I, I read, I started reading um, A Short Stretch, have you read? That's a word, I think it's called A Short Stretch. Um, is it? Uh, 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 it's a, anyway. I'll, it's a it's a book. I'll have um, you're talking. Yeah. All a, a guy. He was a film. He was a film producer, and he got 
he got kind of caught up in a scam, a kind of a tax evasion scam. I ended up going to prison um, for fraud, and he describes his um, his time at uh, War, uh, Wandsworth Prison. Oh my God! And that is a real eye opener. I mean, it's it's a it's it's just brutal. Um, uh, drugs dr- absolutely awash with people with serious mental health issues who shouldn't be there awash with drugs particularly spice which is the drug of choice now for prisons and lots of other people out in the community um, yeah so there's just a, a massive massive lack of resources for every single part of the criminal justice system so um, what happens then if you yeah, if, the, if, if people are being coming out of prison with not even the tiniest hint of rehabilitation, then you can't be too surprised if they then go on to carry on committing crime because there's no other option for them very often. Is there a, a danger that we're moving towards privatisation of policing? Well, that was certainly one of the um, suspicions of a lot of people in policing that this government um, you know, were looking to... Um, sort of effectively create a privatised police service. I'm not quite sure how you would do that, but um, I do think the biggest the biggest fear for me is probably um, uh, criminals, criminal gangs becoming more and more kind of emboldened, um, which has a big impact on public safety generally. Um, one, of the, one of the worries for me as well is that... Um, with the loss of so many, there's, there's people resigning in huge numbers from policing at the moment, um, uh, particularly people sort of with 10 years plus who have just fed up with it um, and they don't see policing as a long-term career anymore, uh, whereas previously it was very unusual for people to leave um, mid-service. They, they saw it as a, a sort of a job for life. They'd stay in for the do their sort of 30 years, whereas a lot of people leaving now... Um, and my fear is that uh, a lot of the deep skills that you need to investigate the most serious crime types, such as sort of murder, terrorism, serious and organized crime, a lot of those people just aren't going to be in the organization anymore. So, I mean, I mean, I had, I had sort of probably nine years investigating terrorism in London, um, and then I came up to the West Midlands. I had another sort of about four years in the West Midlands, and I was a senior investigating officer um, investigating murders and the most serious kind of types of child abuse offences. And it takes a long, was the point I'm making, is it takes a long time to build up that level of knowledge and expertise. Um, and if you've got uh, large numbers of people leaving, you know, within sort of five to ten years of joining, um, where are we going to get those people uh, those detectives who uh, have got the skills and experience to investigate the most serious types of crime. And at the moment in the UK, you've got 5,000 vacant detective posts in England and Wales because people just don't want to do the job. It's too stressful. And, um, Sorry, how many? 5,000 vacant Jesus. detective posts in England and Wales. Nobody, people just don't want to do the job. Um very demoralised. Um, the demands of the criminal justice system are so extreme now that detectives just think, you know what, I just can't be bothered with it. 
What's the criteria to become a detective? Well, it used to be um, you'd have to be uh, shown to be a good, uh, proactive uh, police officer with um, uh, and a, you know a, a high level of kind of arrests and um, ability to investigate crime, and you need to show that you had the basic kind of uh, skills to to do that job, and then you would probably go on to a crime squad and an attachment to a crime squad for maybe 12, 18 months, and they would have a look at you. The CID would have a look at you to see if you were, you know, any good. Uh, and then if you were, then you would have to, you would have to study for um, uh, detective training, so it was uh, called ICIDP. I'm not even sure what that stands for, but uh, you would have to do detective training, and then you would be accredited as a detective constable. Whereas um, I'm hearing some horror stories recently of of them them being so desperate to get people in that they're they're taking probationers who haven't even got through their two years yet. Um, excuse me, and I heard a horror story the other day of them taking in one part of London taking probationers into child abuse investigation teams because literally no one else wanted to do it. So it was kind of like the whole the sole criteria for getting into those teams was do you want to do it not are you any good at it or have you got the right mindset um and so previously to get on a child abuse investigation team you'd probably have to have a minimum of five to six years service you'd have to be a detective and you'd have to have been shown to be competent um as well as having the aptitude to do that particular very specialized type of role whereas in some parts of the country now it's like have you got have you got a pulse you know (laughs) (laughs) sorry that's probably been a bit facetious but but yeah no i know what you mean goodness me a a question you fear just off topic sort of um with having this insight into all of the worst all of the worst kind of people we can be human beings can be i don't mean (laughs) being in the police service i mean seeing (laughs) civilians doing stuff right um especially i mean you mentioned about you know uh, trial, trial abuse investigations and I mean the murder investigations is bad enough, but child abuse I can I can now I cannot imagine anything worse to do in terms of for my own mental sanity to be able to go and do that. Mm. Do you perceive? Do you think you perceive humanity and perceive society in a different way to what Joe Blocks does, knowing what you know and seeing what you've seen? Uh, n- no, I don't think I do actually. Um, I I I actually. Uh, believe very strongly after 30 years of policing that the, the vast majority of people in society are, are decent human beings. Uh, my experience of policing hasn't hasn't in any way sort of jaundiced me about um, human nature. I mean, yes, you do see some horrific people, some dreadful people uh, who have done some dreadful things. Um, but But actually, my overwhelming experience of the British public is that they are decent people most people just want to kind of get on with their lives they want to kind of go to work they want to bring up their families they want to kind of go you know watch the football at the weekend or whatever they they just want to have a a nice life um we we only ever deal with a very tiny proportion of the public um you know probably less than 10 percent of of people so so no it doesn't i mean don't get me wrong it doesn't go doesn't uh, it, a lot of the things that 
a long career in policing, particularly if you've worked in some of those more difficult areas, it does have an impact. Don't get me wrong. You know, I've been very open in my book about some of my sort of periodic struggles with my own mental health. Um, but that's probably, uh, I don't think that's because of feeling any sort of, you know, sense of despair at humanity. I think that's just more about um, some of the stuff that you deal with, uh, combined with just some of the stuff that everyone deals with as just part of their life, you know? So, I mean, I tell a story about when I was a, a detective inspector in Birmingham um, running a child abuse unit. Um, you know, at that time, I went through a really messy, horrible divorce, um, which is, for anyone who's been divorced, knows it's just a fucking nightmare. It's like just the worst crap you'll ever have to deal with, you know. But it, but while I was going through all of that shit, um, I was going out to deal with dead kids in the middle of the night, you know. Um, and uh, there was one point where I didn't have any sleep at all for four days, you know, to the point I thought I was having some sort of mad out-of-body experience, you know, um, and yet you're still going to work and having to deal with some of the most difficult, complex, traumatic incidents um, that anyone's ever likely to have to deal with in policing, you know, so... Why didn't you take leave? Oh, fuck knows. I don't know what I was thinking about. I know. I was sense of responsibility <laughs> by any chance? I don't know what. Uh, I, I tell it again. I tell a story where um, I went to an awards evening one evening in Birmingham for some of my staff and my team were getting awards. So I, so I went there as, as the boss I had to kind of support them, I suppose. And um, I felt shocking. I felt absolutely fucking terrible. Um, I hadn't slept in four days. And the business manager, she's like, she called Terry, her name was, and she, she ran all the sort of like, you know, um, business admin department of the, where I was working at the time. She's lovely. And she, she came up to me and said, are you all right, Ian? And I was like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's, she's like, Ian, you look terrible. And, <laughs> and I was like, and I, I burst into tears in front of her and I said Terry I haven't slept in four days and uh, she was like oh god Ian you idiot you know so she got me a lift home and uh, anyway I went to see a doctor the next day and got myself sorted out you know but yeah it's uh, it can be very very stressful I think and if you've got something else going on in your life at the same time uh, which uh, it can be I mean, I don't mind saying during that period, I was feeling pretty desperate, pretty desperate. Yeah. Some people forget, we're mm. human beings, right? You know, mm. the you, you go back to the the news and the media, sensationalism and outrage, and 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 the 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 complete willing to throw a whole organisation under the bus because of the actions of one or a few individuals, mm. <coughs> whatever the organisation may be. The baseline level. Fucking human beings. Yeah. Human beings. Even those interactions. I always go back to the, the parking warden analogy. Not the police officer parking wardens, but you go to the human beings. You know, everyone hates a parking warden. Everyone hates a parking warden. And legitimately so, right? <laughs> but I don't hate the individual. I know you know, they're just doing yeah. the job. It's like Jesus. Yeah. You go to the the police officer dealing with super stressful stuff. 
day in, day out. Yeah. Not, necess- not necessarily traumatic day in, day out, mm. but super stressful. Yeah. From, you know, only, you only see one aspect of what their life is when you see them on the street or in a car or whatever. There's 99% of it you don't see mm. from being back in the station to the paperwork to the investigation side to dealing with where they want to be in their career to dealing with the home stuff to uh, it's just you know we are we very very quickly forget the human side of people when, yeah. we're doing, when we're thinking and talking about stuff like this and it's a real shame yeah it's a real shame it's a horrible well we used to get uh, occupational health um psychiatric it was like clinical it was called clinical supervision because of the rule i was doing at that time uh, i and the rest of my team um used to have to get, I think it was once every six months or something like that, the psychiatric nurse would come out and and spend 45 minutes interviewing every single person on the team, including me, um, to see if we were still um, functioning. And, um, <laughs> and uh, at the end of that process, uh, she would have a little one-to-one meeting with me as the boss, you know, of the team. And uh, I remember this, t- this happened twice. Uh, where she sat down and said, oh, Ian, I'm a bit worried. Your whole team are cracking up. Um, I think they're also showing very, very high levels of stress and anxiety. Uh, and, and if you don't mind me saying so, I think you are too. And I was like, no fucking shit, Sherlock. It's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But the thing is, what are you actually going to do about that? Because the referrals aren't going to go away. Um, we're not you gonna, say referrals, what do you mean? So refer, referrals, so 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 the the cases, you oh. know. So we would get we would pick up referrals that would come in from social services or from A and E departments or whatever, um, or, or walk-ins off the street or whatever. Um, so the the number of referrals or cases aren't going to go away. Um, we're not going to get any more staff. Um, we've pretty much been told that. So, you know. What you what you suggest? Over to you, you know. Yeah. And sure enough, they've never got an answer to that one, have they? So, so the whole point of doing that kind of psychological assessment becomes completely well, becomes completely pointless, doesn't it? Well, unless it's going to take, get taken notice of in the uh, overall statistics of the, you know, the uh, the organisations that's doing the assessment, paying attention to the numbers, maybe, mm. maybe. Um, what have we not covered that you wanted to cover? Um, been good conversation. Is there anything we have? Yeah, I'm just I'm conscious it's probably been a bit depressing really for people to, to, no, I don't think to so. listen it's to. Been, it's been a good it's been a very you know. good insight, a very good insight into it. And um I'm looking forward to reading the book. There's a lot of I suppose just a, if people want to buy the book, um you'll find it on um the usual places like Amazon, um Waterstone's website, it's on the the um uh, w H. Smith website. It's on lots of different places. It's currently in hardback at the moment, but it's going to be coming out in paperback. And it is on Kindle, but I think you end up spending the same amount on Kindle as for the hardback, which probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But just to reassure people, it's there's a lot of laughs in there as well, a lot of laughs, and um, some silly stuff, some funny stories about um, some of the stuff I got involved in. So there's a lot of light and dark. Um, but so it's not, it's not, you're not going to end up feeling that you want to go and slash your wrists after reading it. Are you going to audiobook it? Uh, I dare say in due course it'll probably become an audiobook, but it's only been out for about eight to ten weeks, something like that. So it's really early days, really early days. I think the publishers are keen that they exhaust the hardback sales before they put it out in paperback or, or audiobook. So, 
but yeah, no, it seems to be doing well, getting some great reviews, lots of brilliant reviews on Amazon, and um, yeah, yeah, it's great, it's exciting. Um, writing a book, like, it's hard work, but it's unbelievably rewarding, and um, I was expecting to get a lot of shit from uh, certain quarters, either sort of very senior officers or maybe politicians or uh, even activists would maybe come after me, but so far... Everything seems okay, you know. <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, you're more than welcome to come back in here at any point. I'd love to talk to you about your, about your career in general. You know, I know you've probably got a, a gazillion <laughs> <laughs> interesting, amusing, dark stories as well. Um, it'd, be, it'd be great to hear them at some point. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. It'd be great. Perfect. Tango Juliet Foxtrot on Amazon and everywhere else. And uh, Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, right? That's right. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, usual places, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I think we're on episode 24, 25 at the moment. So lots of interviews with some really interesting people um, who've got stories to tell, who've all been involved in law enforcement in some extent or another. Um, some, yeah, some great characters. Um, yeah, great. And also I sort of, I do through 70% interviews and the other 30% I kind of give my thoughts on current stuff going on in the news around policing and try and give you my sort of thoughts and perspectives really so perfect it's been a pleasure Cheers thank you again. very much indeed no worries If you prefer watching the podcast, you can go and watch them on YouTube. So you can see my ugly mug on every episode and the guest's ugly mug or pretty mug or handsome mug, whoever it is the guest is. You can look into the whites of their eyes while they're spinning their dits and telling their stories and imparting their extensive knowledge and experience on you, the listener, and me, the interviewer. So yeah, YouTube's everywhere. You can also become a patron of the podcast, um, get access to all, get access to a whole load of stuff actually. Access to the podcast, every single podcast before it's released, generally released, uh, on general release. You also get access to interviews that are done that are not released publicly. I interviewed Steve separately before this podcast. It's a mini podcast, if you like, a more structured interview. It lasts about 10, 15 minutes. Each one does, and that happens with every guest. You can get a unique insight into Steve's life and experiences about other stuff that we didn't mention on this podcast. Yeah, become a patron. Patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts or go on to the podcast website charliecharlie1.com and hit become a patron easy peasy easy pe- saying easy peasy a lot today do you know why because it's easy peasy become a HR patron don't forget this podcast was brought to you by combat cigars combat cigars are a veteran owned veteran operated cigar company the only British military owned cigar company in existence sourcing cigars from a family who've been producing them for over two hundred years incredible cigars people who try our cigars for the first time are repeatedly saying these are the finest cigars they are tasting i am not joking they are saying that yes it surprises me too we are very lucky to have landed on our feet with our cigar partners who produce a cigar for us very happy combatcigars.co.uk there's a sale on right now it ends very very soon you need to get amongst it right get on there and uh, there are discount codes floating about if you search for them there are in fact let me think. CC2022, I think, is one of them. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. Keep that a secret. Combat Cigars, the Cody UK.
This podcast is also brought to you today, today, remember, by Rugby for Heroes, the not-for-profit organisation, a fucking incredible not-for-profit organisation, who organise fundraising events to raise money for military charities. Okay? This organisation is one of my favourite on the planet. One, because they do good stuff. Two, because there's awesome people behind it, and I know those people, and I don't advocate anything that I don't wholeheartedly believe in. Rugby for Heroes is one of those organisations like I like to advocate. Advocate rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Look for their supper clubs. Look for their events coming up this year and get along to one of them or all of them. I'll see you at all of them. I'm going to all of them. I'm going to make sure I do. The podcast was also brought to you. To the podcast was also brought to you today by the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group has established itself as a major player in its field. And they've been doing that since 1982 because they're renowned for their exceptional technology and innovative propositions that support countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Many of the listeners, many of the watchers, could be you, are one of those people. You are those people. You work in those dodgy areas. You don't mind doing it. You've got skills and experience to bring to bear, and Aardvark can help you capitalise on that. They've also got a shop uh, on the side. I say on the side. They've got a shop. It's not on the side. It's like some dodgy thing. On their website, which tells you all about their products and services, they've also got a shop where you can get bits of kit. Bits of kit. You can get, what am I saying? They've got kit and equipment that is designed for carrying on the man or woman in those theatres of war, hostile environments, post-conflict zones. Things like trauma packs, med kits. Go on to the website aardvark.group. If you see something there you fancy, use the discount code HHOUR at checkout and you will get a discount. That's it. Thank you to the sponsors of the podcast for bringing you to the podcast today. Thank you. Become a patron if you so wish and I will see you in the private Discord community there is for patrons. Uh, until next time, out. <laughs>